what do you think led to the demise of Fatima to Zahra? Why is it that her grave is unknown? Um, and um, and kind of tell us what you thought went wrong after the demise, or maybe even before the demise of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, and until the moment that she died. The second question that I wanted to ask you prior, but I I think it's more appropriate for me to ask you now, uh, is that what do you think as a person who studied the life of Zainab, who studied the life of Hussein, and now wants to study the life of Abbas, I'm sure you've thought about this very well. What do you think led to the massacre of Karbala amongst the Muslims? You know, it's not every day that you hear a community attacked, the grandson of the Prophet beheads him, kills him, takes his woman as captives, takes, takes his head around from city to city, uh, 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 and, and parades his family uh, and disrespects him in such a manner. Is there a correlation between the two events? So I'd like for you to, to kind of shed light from your perspective on those matters. So, so when, I, when, I wrote the, when I worked on the life of Lady Fatima, I used a substantial number of Sunni texts. Firstly, because I wanted some historical balance. In other words, as a non-Muslim historian, I wanted to see what, what a variety of, variety of texts were saying about her. Because the impression had been given that Fatima didn't exist in the Sunni texts. Well, this is completely untrue. The most important hadith about Lady Fatima are found in the most important Sunni books. This is absolutely clear, and we can, we can yes. mention some of them. This is not, a, not even an issue. So, um, so in terms of the events immediately after the death of the Prophet, I also used a number of Sunni and Shia historians. The Shia historians are actually fewer than the Sunni historians, I mean, who are, who are writing great books of history. So, for example, I used a great deal of Tabari, because Tabari, Tabari is a very early historian who uses eyewitness accounts, and Tabari himself is quite clear that something bad happened physically, he doesn't say what. He, and if I remember back, he, he limits himself to saying voices and emotions were raised. That's all he says. He doesn't go into any more detail. Now, now Tabari is quite pro-Hussein. When he writes about Karbala, it is quite clear that even as a Sunni historian, he tends towards sympathy for the, the Ahl Bayt, or at least for the group around al-Hussein. Therefore, I don't see why he would, he would be against Fatima. We know from the history books that immediately after the death of the, of the Prophet, there were a number of groups that began to gather. The Ansar, of course, on one side gathered um, because there was great suspicion between them and the original kind of Meccan Muslims and, and some hostility. And both groups wanted to make sure that one of their own took over. Whereas the Ahl Bayt, the proper Ahl Bayt, that is Ali, Lady Fatima, certainly the young children, Al-Hassan and Hussein, maybe a very young Zainab as well, were in the house of Ali, I presume Ali's house, preparing the body of the Prophet for burial, and therefore were not part of these illegal meetings, which shouldn't have been taking place, taking place anyway, A, without the presence of Ali. How can you possibly decide the future without the son-in-law and almost the brother of the Prophet in terms of physical relationship? But also because the, the priority at that moment was not who would take over, but the burial with dignity and prayer of the Prophet of Islam. That should have been the priority. The fact that these 
political groupings got together and then heard about each other and interfered with each other's meetings and then eventually somebody proclaimed somebody and the next thing you had a leader, all the while that the Ahl Bayt members were not there, the most important members, that is, the only surviving child of the Prophet was not there and his son-in-law was not there. It is a very curious thing. If you told that story, without mentioning names, to somebody today, they would agree that that is a great injustice. The trouble is, the moment you mention the names, people take sides. But if I were to tell you that story, as if you were a non-Muslim and say, can you imagine this person died and this happened? Without, you would immediately agree that some injustice had taken place. So besides the injustice of all of that, in other words, the political maneuvering, um, and I, you know, this is not just because I study Shia. I follow the, the tendency of a, a Western scholar called Wilfred Madelung. Madelung is a very good scholar. I think he's still alive. And he, he tended to, to, to decide that, that the prophet had indeed appointed a successor. That when you take all the probabilities and put them together, and, and use a, a logical, and there was a medieval Islamic scholar, Shia scholar, who used a series of logical arguments to say, to say it is impossible that he didn't, it is absolutely impossible, that the probability is that he certainly did, um, and that he did it in front of enough people to know what he was saying. So that, too, renders those meetings very dubious. Um, so you have two great injustices there, and then a third injustice is the physical action taken. Now... Now, I myself, and this is my own personal opinion from researching her life, I suspect that Lady Fatima might have been quite frail at that time. Not emotionally, not psychologically, but physically. I think there, were, there are certain elements that come through that suggest that physically she was frail. And we do have hadith that tell of her grinding at the mill, her exhaustion, running the household. So there may have well been some physical ailment afflicting her. That is then compounded by the death of her beloved father, to whom she was utterly devoted. And quite possibly at the moment of his death, she was somewhat ousted from his immediate presence. And she was present, but, but perhaps at a distance. And then, and then whatever happened at the house, and it was certainly something physical, and, and it was something that would have been witnessed, witnessed by the two boys, but also by Lady Zainab. She would have, as a young child, been traumatized by a group of angry men appearing at the house. It is, it is brutal that people should do that, um, and especially a house where there are women and children. Um, and, and in the process, again, when I put all the probabilities together, it seems almost certain that some injury took place. Now, whether whether she was injured by the door being kicked down or whether she was physically actually attacked by somebody is quite hard for me to say because, because there are a variety of opinions. But certainly there seems to be a physical injury which not only hastened her own death a few months later, but also killed the child she was carrying in her womb, who, who was therefore a brother to Al-Hassan and Al-Hussein. So it is, a, again, a story that I say often, must flush the face of Islam with embarrassment that this could have happened while the Prophet, if you'll forgive the expression, was still warm. He, he had literally just died. His spirit was still present and that this should happen. So back to back with that, well, again, 
it's very interesting for me to understand. So I've, I've obviously looked quite deeply at these two characters, Ziyad and Yazid, because they are interesting characters. Um, I get into trouble when I say this, but I think that Ziyad was worse than Yazid, I think myself. I think the way he treated the survivors was an abomination, the, the little children. Yazid, because I think that he was mentally unstable also, Yazid seemed to, seemed to try to protect the girls, at least the little girls, from seeing the head of al-Hussein, whereas Ziyad took great pleasure in, in mocking the head and exposing it to the view of everybody. Um, so I, I think that in a sense, Yazid, um, as opposed to Ibn Ziyad, I must remember to call him Ibn Ziyad, he's not Ziyad. Yes, I, got, I, I got understand. Corrected the other day by a very good scholar who said it's actually Ibn Ziyad, he's quite correct. So Ibn Ziyad, I think, was mentally unstable. His mood swings are extraordinary in, this, in these moments he spends talking to, interrogating Lady Zainab and then Zain al Yazid, I think myself, realized he'd done something really terrible. And I think he was back tracking as fast as he could. I think he knew it was his, his own demise now, this. And in fact, he didn't survive many years after Karbala. Um, but they were two equally bad men. And what puzzles me is how they got so many people to follow them. That's what puzzles me. I can understand bad people. I can't understand huge groups following them. Now, whether it's because the people of Kufa, for example, were paid off, there is that, that they were bribed to withdraw their support from al-Hussein. But whatever it was, these two evil men with their own evil political greed and their own complete misunderstanding of how Islam should be lived. I mean, even in the Sunni texts, Yazid is accused for drunkenness and for gambling. He's, he used to gamble with dogs, I think dog racing. I think uh, Tabari says he, was, he, he used to gamble with dog, dogs and drink alcohol. You know, this is the, the, the so-called Khalifa of the House of Islam. You know, again, within, within such a short time of the Prophet's death that you still have him his spirit alive as a model of true Islamic behavior. It's not 600 years later where he's, you know, he's fading from people's memories. It's not, it's, it's right then. So you have these two particularly evil men surrounded by some very evil advisors. It's, it's, how, they, it's how they managed to get such a large army to move against Hussein. And there's the famous, you know, the famous um, conversion moment of, of Hur, who, who, who changes sides because he realizes that this is, this is just madness. And I suspect there may have been others too. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, the death of Hussein is somewhat like the death of Jesus. It is both political and religious. I think, you know, Jesus, Jesus from the Christian point of view, Jesus made certain claims and he was very, very quick to point out injustices that were not popularly received, the criticisms, and he threatened the status quo because justice did. I mean, if you remember back to the time of the prophet from the very beginning, his message threatened the status quo of the Meccan, of the Meccan civilization and the Meccan financial empire, which it was, it was really that. Well, in the same way, I think Al-Hussein's absolutely rigorous thirst for justice was a great threat to, to a corrupt and a lazy caliphate. And, uh, I think just very quick uh, follow-ups, and we'll move on with the uh, with uh, with with other with other questions. 
greatest lesson from the life of Hussein, greatest lesson from the life of Fatima? I, I think it's both the same. It's both the same. There, there, was a, there was a pope here in Rome, Paul VI, who said, if you want peace, you have to work for justice. Peace is not the natural state of humanity. It takes hard work, but you will never have peace if you don't have justice. And, and I think that the two qualities, let's call it taqwa, however you want to translate that word, righteousness or piety or God-fearingness, that hand in hand with the determination to tell the truth, because justice cannot survive without truth. If you want peace, you need to work for justice. If you want justice, you have to tell the truth, painful as it is. And I think Lady Fatima, after the death of her father, especially when she saw her husband being marginalized, I think Lady Zainab, after the death of her brother, I think Hussein himself, that all three of them and all the other members, too, of the, of the Ahlbayt, all three of them told the truth not just some truths, religious truths or political truths, but the truth with a capital T. That's what caused Ibn Yazid, uh, uh, Yazid and Ibn Ziyad to back down from, from, from Zainab. Why didn't they kill her? They could have killed her easily. They killed so many already. Why didn't they kill Zainab? Even Zain al-Abidin was under great threat. Why didn't they kill Lady Zainab? There was a moment when Ibn Ziyad almost did. The, the texts say that he began to think bad thoughts about her. In other words, he was going to kill her. And he didn't. What caused these two dreadful human beings to step back? Truth, of course, truth. They knew that before the truth that she was speaking, they had no defense, and they both stepped back. So I think that, you know, and if I could just very quickly give this analogy, because this is my favorite analogy. Um, if the nerves of your hand begin to lie to you, if they begin to tell you that something is hot when it's cold, or something is cold when it's hot, you cannot survive. If we do not have truth, if the messages that are being given to us are, begin to be lies, the community has no chance of any sort of life. Truth is absolutely crucial for any sort of, any stab at a, a halfway decent life. And that's why I absolutely love Hussein and Zainab, because they, they knew the consequences and they still told the truth. Um, that, I think that's a rare thing. I think lots of people quite easily skirt the truth, either by silence or by manipulating it, but they just told it as it was. And that's an extraordinary thing for me. Father, your answers are very inspirational and very beautiful, very informative. Um, as somebody who has studied Islam, as a non-Muslim who has studied Islam, as uh, a, a religious leader of another community, uh, but let's face it, uh, a lot of Muslims today around the world, uh, I should even say Muslims who have studied in the seminary, uh, Muslims that have large libraries, uh, even some who may lead Friday prayers here and there in, in the West, uh, believe it or not, uh, don't know much about what you just told us. Um, they don't know much about what happened, what really happened after the demise of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, and specifically what led to uh, the killing of Imam al-Hussein, because obviously this was not something that just happened overnight. I mean, it's not, it's not possible for people 
like you said, to rally such a large army uh, to kill Hussein, the son of Ali and Fatima. And he, in fact, made sure that he reminds them when he stood several times, several times. And I, though this is not mentioned specifically in the different maqatil, but this is my take from, from reading it so many times and looking at so many different books of history. I believe because the masses were so large, Imam al-Hussein gave several sermons during the 10th of Muharram, and obviously prior to that. But he probably chose different parts of this army, meaning he focused on different parts so that every one of them would eventually hear him and would eventually hear his cries and, and, and be able to kind of come back to themselves and, and ask themselves, what the hell am I doing here? Uh, what is this? So amongst the things that he does is he, and this obviously would probably uh, be mentioned in your book of the dreams uh, leading to Ashura and probably uh, uh, in, in, that, um, in, in the days of the camping of Imam Hussein in Mecca and obviously leading to, to Iraq. I'm sure all of those are recorded there. Um, but he took with him the horse of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, you know, that he took with him the, 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 the amama, the turban of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, you know, for somebody just to go out to perform hajj and, and wants to go back to Medina, that doesn't make sense. So Imam Hussein, obviously, in his sermons, specifically the one in Mecca, made it clear that he knows, like you rightfully said just now, he knows what's going to happen. The letters he writes for his supporters, telling them that, look, there isn't going to be any you know, hukm or, or fat or, or survival even, we will all be killed. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, um, and if, if, it's, if, if the, the, the religion of Muhammad is not going to survive without me welcoming you, O swords, then I welcome you. I embrace you. Um, a lot of people, a lot of people today, do not know what happened that led to the Muslim community to hear Hussein wearing the turban of the Prophet, sitting on the horse of the Prophet, um, wearing some of the attire that the Prophet, Jubba that the Prophet used to wear, telling them, do you know who I am? Yes, we do know who you are. Is there any other <clears throat> grandson to any Prophet besides me, that is alive on the face of this earth, no. Then allow me to just go freely. Don't stain your hands with my blood. 